Part 15 of The Naval War of 1812 by Theodore Roosevelt This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 15 List of vessels lost to the British 1. Destroyed by British armies The Columbia, 1,508 tons, 52 guns The Adams, 760 tons, 28 guns the argus 509 tons 22 guns all three of these vessels were destroyed to prevent them falling into hands of the enemy the carolina 230 tons 14 guns destroyed by battery for a total of 3007 tons 116 guns 2 captured etc by british navy on ocean the essex 860 tons, 46 guns, captured by frigate and corvette. The Frolic, 509 tons, 22 guns, captured by frigate and schooner. The Rattlesnake, 258 tons, 16 guns, captured by frigate. The Siren, 250 tons, 16 guns, captured by 74, for a total of 1,877 tons, and 100 guns total of 4884 tons and 216 guns there were also a good many gunboats which i do not count because as already said they were often not as large as the barges that were sunk and taken in attacking them as at craney island etc list of vessels taken from the british one captured by the american privateers the ballyhoo eighty six tons four guns the land rail seventy six tons four guns two captured etc by american navy on ocean the epervier four hundred and seventy seven tons eighteen guns captured by the sloop peacock the avon four hundred and seventy seven tons twenty guns sunk by the sloop wasp the reindeer four hundred and seventy seven tons nineteen guns sunk by the sloop wasp pick two three hundred tons fourteen guns captured by frigate three sunk in attacking port the hermes five hundred tons twenty two guns for a total of two thousand three hundred and ninety three tons and one hundred and one guns taking into account the losses on the lakes there was not very much difference in the amount of damage done to each combatant by the other but both as regards the material results and the moral effects the balance inclined largely to the americans the chief damage done to our navy was by the british land forces and consisted mainly in forcing us to burn an unfinished frigate and sloop on the ocean our three sloops were captured in each case by an overwhelming force against which no resistance could be made and the same was true of the captured british schooner the essex certainly gained as much honor as her opponents there were but three single ship actions in all of which the americans were so superior in force as to give them a very great advantage Nevertheless, in two of them the victory was won with such perfect impunity 
and the difference in the loss and damage inflicted was so very great that i doubt if the result would have been affected if the odds had been reversed in the other case that of the reindeer the defeated party fought at a still greater disadvantage and yet came out of the conflict with full as much honour as the victor no man with a particle of generosity in his nature can help feeling the most honest admiration for the unflinching courage and cool skill displayed by captain manners and his crew it is worthy of notice remembering the sneers of so many of the british authors at the wary circumspection of the americans that captain manners who has left a more honourable name than any other british commander of the war excepting captain broke behaved with the greatest caution as long as it would serve his purpose while he showed the most splendid personal courage afterward it is this combination of courage and skill that made him so dangerous an antagonist it showed that the traditional british bravery was not impaired by refusing to adhere to the traditional british tactics of rushing into a fight bull-headed needless exposure to danger denotes not so much pluck as stupidity captain manners had no intention of giving his adversary any advantage he could prevent no one can help feeling regret that he was killed but if he has to fall what more glorious death could he meet it must be remembered that while paying all homage to captain manners captain blakely did equally well it was a case where the victory between two combatants equal in courage and skill was decided by superior weight of metal and number of men prizes made the president three the constitution six the adams ten the frolic two the wasp fifteen the peacock fifteen hornet one small craft thirty five for a total of eighty seven chapter eight eighteen fourteen on the lakes ontario the winter was spent by both parties in preparing more formidable fleets for the ensuing summer all the american schooners had proved themselves so unfit for service that they were converted into transports except the sylph which was brig-rigged and armed like the oneida sackett's harbor possessed but slight fortifications and the americans were kept constantly on the alert through fear lest the british should cross over commodore chauncey and mr eckford were as unremitting in their exertions as ever in february two twenty-two gun brigs the jefferson and jones and one large frigate of fifty guns the superior were laid afterward a deserter brought in news of the enormous size of one of the new british frigates and the superior was enlarged to permit her carrying sixty-two guns the jefferson was launched on april seventh the jones on the tenth and the superior on may second an attempt on the part of the british to blow her up having been foiled a few days before another frigate the mohawk forty-two was at once begun neither guns nor men for the first three ships had as yet arrived 
but they soon began to come in as the roads got better and the streams opened chauncey and eckford besides building ships that were literally laid down in the forest and seeing that they were armed with heavy guns which as well as all their stores had to be carried overland hundreds of miles through the wilderness were obliged to settle quarrels that occurred among the men the most serious being one that arose from a sentinel's accidentally killing a shipwright whose companions instantly struck work in a body what was more serious they had to contend with such constant and virulent sickness that it almost assumed the proportions of a plague during the winter it was seldom that two-thirds of the force were fit for duty and nearly a sixth of the whole number of men in the port died before navigation opened footnote cooper mentions that in five months the madison buried a fifth of her crew and a footnote meanwhile yeo had been nearly as active at kingston laying down two frigates and her huge line of battleship but his shipwrights did not succeed in getting the latter ready much before navigation closed the prince regent fifty eight and princess charlotte forty two were launched on april fifteenth i shall anticipate somewhat by giving tabular lists of the comparative forces after the two british frigates the two american frigates and the two american brigs had all been equipped and manned commodore yeo's original six cruisers had been all renamed some of them rearmed and both the schooners changed into brigs the wolf royal george melville moira beresford and sydney smith were all now named respectively montreal niagara star charwell netley and magnet on the american side there had been but slight changes beyond the alteration of the sylph into a brig like the oneida of the superiors sixty-two guns four were very shortly sent on shore again chauncey's squadron superior a ship one thousand five hundred and eighty tons a crew of five hundred broadside metal one thousand fifty pounds thirty long thirty-twos two long twenty-fours and twenty-six short forty-twos the mohawk ship thirteen hundred and fifty tons three hundred and fifty crew five hundred and fifty-four pounds of broadside metal twenty-six long twenty-fours two long eighteens and fourteen short thirty-twos the pike a ship eight hundred and seventy-five tons three hundred crew three hundred and sixty pounds of broadside metal twenty-six long twenty-fours two long twenty-fours the madison a ship five hundred and ninety-three tons two hundred crew three hundred and sixty-four pounds of broadside metal two long twelves and twenty-two short thirty-twos the jones a brig five hundred tons one hundred and sixty crew three hundred and thirty-two pounds of broadside metal two long twelves and twenty short thirty-twos the jefferson a brig five hundred tons one hundred and sixty crew three hundred and thirty-two pounds of broadside metal 
two long twelves and twenty short thirty-twos the sylph a brig three hundred tons one hundred crew a hundred and eighty pounds of broadside metal two long twelves and fourteen short twenty-fours the oneida a brig two hundred and forty-three tons one hundred crew one hundred and eighty pounds of broadside metal two long twelves and fourteen short twenty-fours for a total of eight vessels five thousand nine hundred and forty one tons one thousand eight hundred and seventy crew three thousand three hundred and fifty two pounds of broadside metal and two hundred and twenty eight guns this is considerably less than james makes it as he includes all the schooners which were abandoned as cruisers and only used as transports or gunboats similarly sir james has a large number of gunboats which are not included in his cruising force james thus makes chauncey's force two thousand three hundred twenty one men and a broadside of four thousand one hundred eighty eight pounds yeo's squadron the prince regent a ship fourteen hundred and fifty tons four hundred and eighty five crew eight hundred seventy two pounds of broadside metal thirty two long twenty fours four short sixty eights twenty two short thirty twos the princess charlotte ship one thousand two hundred fifteen tons three hundred and fifteen crew six hundred and four pounds of broadside metal twenty six long twenty fours two short sixty eights fourteen short thirty twos the montreal a ship six hundred and thirty seven tons two hundred and twenty crew two hundred and fifty eight pounds of broadside metal seven long twenty fours and eighteen long eighteens the niagara a ship five hundred and ten tons two hundred crew three hundred and thirty two pounds of broadside metal two long twelves twenty short thirty twos the charwell a brig two hundred and seventy nine tons one hundred and ten crew two hundred and thirty six pounds of broadside metal two long twelves fourteen short thirty twos the star a brig two hundred two hundred and sixty two tons one hundred and ten crew two hundred and thirty six pounds of broadside metal two long twelves and fourteen short thirty twos the netley a brig two hundred and sixteen tons one hundred crew one hundred eighty pounds of broadside metal two long twelves fourteen short twenty fours the magnet a ship one hundred and eighty seven tons eighty crew one hundred and fifty six pounds of broadside metal two long twelves and twelve short twenty fours for a total of eight vessels four thousand seven hundred and fifty six tons one thousand six hundred and twenty crew two thousand eight hundred and seventy four pounds of broadside metal and two hundred and nine guns this tallies pretty well with james's statement which on page four hundred eighty eight is one thousand five hundred and seventeen men and a broadside of two thousand seven hundred and fifty two pounds but there are very probably errors as regards the armament of the small brigs which were continually changed at any rate the american fleet was certainly the stronger about in the proportion of six to five the disproportion was enough to justify sir james in his determination not 
to hazard a battle although the odds were certainly not such as british commanders had been previously accustomed to pay much regard to chauncey would have acted exactly as his opponent did had he been similarly placed the odds against the british commodore were too great to be overcome where the combatants were otherwise on a par although the refusal to do battle against them would certainly preclude yeo from advancing any claims to superiority in skill or courage the princess charlotte and niagara were just about equal to the mohawk and madison and so were the charwell and netley to the oneida and sylph but both the star and magnet together could hardly have matched either the jones or the jefferson while the main deck thirty twos of the superior gave her a great advantage over the prince regent's twenty fours where the crews were so equal and the pike was certainly too heavy for the montreal a decided superiority in the effectiveness of both crews and captains could alone have warranted sir james lucas yeo in engaging and this superiority he certainly did not possess this year the british architects outstripped ours in the race for supremacy and commodore yeo put out of port with his eight vessels long before the americans were ready his first attempt was a successful attack on oswego this town is situated some sixty miles distant from sackett's harbor and is the first port on the lake which the stores sent from the seaboard to chauncey reached accordingly it was a place of some little importance but was very much neglected by the american authorities it was insufficiently garrisoned and was defended only by an entirely ruined fort of six guns two of them dismounted commodore yeo sailed from kingston to attack it on the third of may having on board his ships a detachment of one thousand eighty troops oswego was garrisoned by less than three hundred men footnote general order of general jacob brown by r jones assistant adjutant general may twelfth eighteen fourteen and a footnote chiefly belonging to a light artillery regiment with a score or two of militia they were under the command of colonel mitchell the recaptured schooner growler was in port with seven guns destined for the harbor she was sunk by her commander but afterward raised and carried off by the foe on the fifth yeo appeared off oswego and sent in captain collier and thirteen gunboats to draw the fort's fire after some firing between them and the four guns mounted in the fort two long twenty-fours one long twelve and one long six the gunboats retired the next day the attack was seriously made the princess charlotte montreal and niagara engaged the batteries while the charwell and the star scoured the woods with grape to clear them of the militia footnote letter of general gordon drummond may seventh eighteen fourteen and a footnote the debarkation of troops was superintended by captain o'connor 
and until it was accomplished the montreal sustained almost the whole fire of the fort being set on fire three times and much cut up in hull masts and rigging footnote letter of sir james lucas yeo may seventeenth eighteen fourteen end of footnote under this fire eight hundred british troops were landed under lieutenant colonel fisher assisted by two hundred seamen armed with long pikes under captain mulcaster they moved gallantly up the hill under a heavy fire and carried the fort by assault mitchell then fell back unmolested to the falls about twelve miles above the town where there was a large quantity of stores but he was not again attacked the americans lost six men killed including lieutenant blaney thirty-eight wounded and twenty-five missing both of these last falling into the enemy's hands the british lost twenty-two soldiers marines and seamen including captain holloway killed and seventy-three including the gallant captain mulcaster dangerously and captain pofam slightly wounded footnote letter of lieutenant colonel v fisher may seventeenth eighteen fourteen james says eighteen killed and sixty-four wounded why i do not know the official report of colonel fisher as quoted says of the army nineteen killed and sixty-two wounded of the navy three killed and eleven wounded End of footnote. the total loss being ninety-five nearly a third of the american force engaged general drummond in his official letter reports that the fort being everywhere almost open the whole of the garrison effected their escape except about sixty men half of them wounded no doubt the forts being everywhere almost open afforded excellent opportunities for retreat but it was not much of a recommendation of it as a structure intended for defence the british destroyed the four guns in the battery and raised the growler and carried her off with her valuable cargo of seven long guns they also carried off a small quantity of ordnance stores and some flour and burned the barracks otherwise but little damage was done and the americans reoccupied the place at once it certainly showed great lack of energy on commodore yeo's part that he did not strike a really important blow by sending an expedition up to destroy the quantity of stores and ordnance collected at the falls but the attack itself was admirably managed the ships were well placed and kept up so heavy a fire on the fort as to effectually cover the deparkation of the troops which was very cleverly accomplished and the soldiers and seamen behaved with great gallantry and steadiness their officers leading them sword in hand up a long steep hill under a destructive fire it was similar to chauncey's attacks on york and fort george except that in this case the assailants suffered a much severer loss compared to that inflicted on the assailed colonel mitchell managed the defence with skill doing all he could with his insufficient materials 
after returning to kingston yeo sailed with his squadron for sackett's harbor where he appeared on may nineteenth and began a strict blockade this was especially troublesome because most of the guns and cables for the two frigates had not yet arrived and though the lighter pieces and stores could be carried overland the heavier ones could only go by water which route was now made dangerous by the presence of the blockading squadron the very important duty of convoying these great guns was entrusted to captain woolsey an officer of tried merit he decided to take them by water to stony creek whence they might be carried by land to the harbor which was but three miles distant and on that success of his enterprise depended chauncey's chances of regaining command of the lake on the twenty eighth of may at sunset woolsey left oswego with nineteen boats carrying twenty-one long thirty-twos ten long twenty-fours three forty-two pound carronades and ten cables one of the latter for the superior being a huge rope twenty-two inches in circumference and weighing nine thousand six hundred pounds the boats rowed all through the night and at sunrise on the twenty-ninth eighteen of them found themselves off the big salmon river and as it was unsafe to travel by daylight woolsey ran up into big sandy creek eight miles from the harbor the other boat containing two long twenty-fours and a cable got out of line ran into the british squadron and was captured the news she brought induced sir james yeo at once to send out an expedition to capture the others he accordingly dispatched captains popham and spilsbury in two gunboats one armed with one sixty-eight pound and one twenty-four pound carronade and the other with a long thirty-two accompanied by three cutters and a gig mounting between them two long twelves and two brass sixes with a total of one hundred eighty men footnote james volume six page four hundred eighty seven while cooper says one hundred and eighty six james says the british loss was eighteen killed and fifty wounded major appling says fourteen were killed twenty-eight wounded and twenty-seven marines and one hundred six sailors captured End of footnote. they rode up to sandy creek and lay off its mouth all the night and began ascending it shortly after daylight on the thirtieth their force however was absurdly inadequate for the accomplishment of their object captain wolsey had been reinforced by some oneida indians a company of light artillery and some militia so that his only care was not to repulse but to capture the british party entire and even this did not need any exertion he accordingly dispatched major appling down the river with one hundred and twenty riflemen footnote letter of major d appling may thirtieth eighteen fourteen end of footnote and some indians to lie in ambush footnote letter of captain m t woolsey june first eighteen fourteen there were about sixty indians in all the american force amounted to one hundred and eighty men james adds thirty riflemen 
140 Indians and a large body of militia and cavalry, none of whom were present. End of footnote. When going up the creek, the British marines under Lieutenant Cox were landed on the left bank, and the small arm men under Lieutenant Brown on the right bank, while the two captains rode up the stream between them, throwing grape into the bushes to disperse the Indians. Major Appling waited until the British were close up, when his riflemen opened with so destructive a volley as to completely demoralize and stampede them, and their whole force was captured with hardly any resistance, the American having only one man slightly wounded. The British loss was severe. Eighteen killed and fifty dangerously wounded, according to Captain Popham's report, as quoted by James, or fourteen killed and twenty-eight wounded, according to Major Appling's letter. It was a very clever and successful ambush. On June 6th, Yeo raised the blockade of the harbor, but Chauncey's squadron was not in condition to put out till six weeks later, during which time nothing was done by either fleet, except that two very gallant cutting-out expeditions were successfully attempted by Lieutenant Francis H. Gregory, U.S.N., on June 16th he left the harbor, accompanied by sailing masters Vaughan and Dixon, and twenty-two seamen in three gigs, to intercept some of the enemy's provision schooners. On the 19th he was discovered by the British gunboat Black Snake, of one eighteen-pound carronade and eighteen men, commanded by Captain H. Landon. Lieutenant Gregory dashed at the gunboat and carried it without the loss of a man. He was afterward obliged to burn it, but he brought the prisoners, chiefly Royal Marines, safely into port. On the 1st of July he again started out with Messrs. Vaughan and Dixon and two gigs. The plucky little party suffered greatly from hunger, but on the 5th he made a sudden descent on Presque Island, and burned a fourteen-gun schooner, just ready for launching. He was off before the foe could assemble, and reached the harbor in safety next day. On July 31st, Commodore Chauncey sailed with his fleet. Some days previously, the larger British vessels had retired to Kingston, where a one-hundred-gun two-decker was building Chauncey sailed up to the head of the lake, where he intercepted the small brig Magnet. The Sylph was sent in to destroy her, but her crew ran her ashore and burned her. The Jefferson, Sylph, and Oneida were left to watch some other small craft in the Niagara. The Jones was kept cruising between the harbor and Oswego, and with the four larger vessels, Chauncey blockaded Yeo's four large vessels lying in Kingston. The four American vessels were in the aggregate of 4,398 tons, manned by rather more than 1,350 men, and presenting in broadside 77 guns, throwing 2,328 pounds of shot. 
the four British vessels measured in all about 3,812 tons, manned by 1,220 men, and presenting in broadside 74 guns, throwing 2,066 pounds of shot. The former were thus superior by about 15 per cent, and Sir James Yeo very properly declined to fight with the odds against him, although it was a nicer calculation than British commanders had been accustomed to enter into. Major General Brown had written to Commodore Chauncey on July 13th, I do not doubt my ability to meet the enemy in the field, and to march in any direction over his country, your fleet carrying for me the necessary supplies. We can threaten Forts George and Niagara, and carry Burlington Heights and York, and proceed direct to Kingston, and carry that place. For God's sake let me see you. Sir James will not fight. To which Chauncey replied, I shall afford every assistance in my power to cooperate with the army whenever it can be done without losing sight of the great object for the attainment of which this fleet has been created, the capture or destruction of the enemy's fleet. But that I consider the primary object. We are intended to seek and fight the enemy's fleet, and I shall not be diverted from my efforts to effectuate it by any sinister attempt to render us subordinate to or an appendage of the army, that is, by any sinister attempt to make him cooperate intelligently in a really well-concerted scheme of invasion. In further support of these noble and independent sentiments, he writes to the Secretary of the Navy on August 10th, footnote C. Niles, volume 7, page 12, and other places, under Chauncey in index, end of footnote. I told General Brown that I should not visit the head of the lake unless the enemy's fleet did so. To deprive the enemy of an apology for not meeting me, I have sent ashore four guns from the superior to reduce her armament in number to an equality with the Prince Regents, yielding the advantage of their sixty-eight pounders. The Mohawk mounts two guns less than the Princess Charlotte, and the Montreal and Niagara are equal to the Pike and Madison. He here justifies his refusal to cooperate with General Brown by saying that he was of only equal force with Sir James, and that he has deprived the latter of an apology for not meeting him. This last was not at all true. The Mohawk and Madison were just about equal to the Princess Charlotte and Niagara, but the Pike was half as strong again as the Montreal, and Chauncey could very well afford to yield the advantage of their sixty-eight pounders, when in return Sir James had to yield the advantage of Chauncey's long thirty-twos and forty-two-pound carronades. The superior was a thirty-two-pounder frigate, and even without her four extra guns was about a fourth heavier than the Prince Regent, with her twenty-four pounders. Sir James was not acting more warily than Chauncey had acted during June and July, 1813. Then he had a fleet which tonned 1,701 
was manned by 680 men and threw at a broadside 1,099 pounds of shot, and he declined to go out of port or in any way try to check the operation of Yeo's fleet, which tunned 2,091 was manned by 770 men and threw in a broadside 1,374 pounds of shot. Chauncey then acted perfectly proper, no doubt. But he could not afford to sneer at Yeo for behaving in the same way. Whatever either commander might write, in reality he well knew that his officers and crew were, man for man, just about on a par with those of his antagonists and so after the first brush or two he was exceedingly careful to see that the odds were not against him chauncey in his petulant answers to brown's letter ignored the fact that his superiority of force would prevent his opponent from giving battle and would therefore prevent anything more important than a blockade occurring his ideas of the purpose for which his command had been created were erroneous and very hurtful to the american cause that purpose was not except incidentally the destruction of the enemy's fleet and if it was he entirely failed to accomplish it the real purpose was to enable canada to be successfully invaded or to assist in repelling an invasion of the united states these services could only be efficiently performed by acting in union with the land forces for his independent action could evidently have little effect the only important services he had performed had been in attacking forts george and york where he had been rendered subordinate to and an appendage of the army his only chance of accomplishing anything lay in similar acts of cooperation, and he refused to do these. Had he acted as he ought to have done, and assisted Brown to the utmost, he would certainly have accomplished much more than he did, and might have enabled Brown to assault Kingston, when Yeo's fleet would of course have been captured. The insubordination, petty stickling for his own dignity, and a lack of appreciation of the necessity of acting in concert that he showed were the very faults which proved most fatal to the success of our various land commanders in the early part of the war even had chauncey's assistance availed nothing he could not have accomplished less than he did he remained off kingston blockading yeo being once or twice blown off by gales he sent lieutenant gregory accompanied by midshipman hart and six men in to reconnoitre on august twenty fifth the lieutenant ran across two barges containing thirty men and was captured after the midshipman had been killed and the lieutenant and four men wounded on september twenty first he transported general izard and three thousand men from sackett's harbor to the genesee and then again blockaded kingston until the two-decker was nearly completed when he promptly retired to the harbor the equally cautious yeo did not come out on the lake till october fifteenth he 
he did not indulge in the empty and useless formality of blockading his antagonist but assisted the british army on the niagara frontier till navigation closed about november twenty first a couple of days before midshipman mcgowan headed an expedition to blow up the two-decker named the st lawrence with a torpedo but was discovered by two of the enemy's boats which he captured and brought in the attempt was abandoned because the st lawrence was found not to be lying in kingston for this year the material loss again fell heaviest on the british amounting to one fourteen-gun brig burned by her crew one ten-gun schooner burned on the stocks three gunboats three cutters and one gig captured while in return the americans lost one schooner loaded with seven guns one boat loaded with two and a gig captured and four guns destroyed at oswego in men the british loss was heavier still relatively to that of the americans being in killed wounded and prisoners about three hundred to eighty but in spite of this loss and damage which was too trivial to be of any account to either side the success of the season was with the british inasmuch as they held command over the lake for more than four months during which time they could cooperate with their army while the americans held it for barely two months and a half in fact the conduct of the two fleets on lake ontario during the latter part of the war was almost farcical as soon as one by building acquired the superiority the foe at once retired to port where he waited until he had built another vessel or two when he came out and the other went into port in turn under such circumstances it was hopeless ever to finish the contest by a stand-up sea fight each commander calculating the chances with mathematical exactness the only hope of destroying the enemy's fleet was by cooperating with the land forces in a successful attack on his main post when he would be forced to be either destroyed or to fight and this cooperation chauncey refused to give he seems to have been an excellent organizer but he did not use certainly not in the summer of eighteen thirteen his materials by any means to the best advantage he was hardly equal to his opponent and the latter seems to have been little more than an average officer yeo blundered several times as in the attack on sackett's harbor in not following up his advantage at oswego in showing so little resource in the action off the genesee etc and he was not troubled by any excess of daring but during the period when he was actually cruising against chauncey on the lake he certainly showed to better advantage than the american did with an inferior force he won a partial victory over his opponent off niagara and then kept him in check for six weeks while chauncey with his superior force was not only partially defeated once but when he did gain a partial victory failed to take advantage of it in commenting upon the timid and dilatory tactics 
of the two commanders on ontario however it must be remembered that the indecisive nature of the results attained had been often paralleled by the numerous similar encounters that took place on the ocean during the wars of the preceding century in the war of the american revolution the english fought some nineteen fleet actions with the french dutch and spaniards one victory was gained over the french and one over the spaniards while the seventeen others were all indecisive both sides claiming the victory and neither winning it of course some of them though indecisive as regards loss and damage were strategical victories thus admiral arbuthnot beat back admiral barras off the chesapeake in march of seventeen eighty one and near the same place in september of the same year the french had their revenge in the victory won at least in its results of the comte de grace over sir thomas graves in the five desperate and bloody combats which de Suffrain waged with sir edward hughes in the east indies the laurels were very evenly divided these five conflicts were not rendered indecisive by any overweariness in manoeuvring for de Suffrain's attacks were carried out with as much boldness as skill and his stubborn antagonist was never inclined to balk him of a fair battle but the two hardy fighters were so evenly matched that they would pound one another till each was helpless to inflict injury very different were the three consecutive battles that took place in the same waters on the twenty fifth of april seventeen fifty eight the third of august seventeen fifty eight and on the tenth of september seventeen fifty nine between pocock and dachet footnote la marine française sur la reine de louis quesquesin par henri rivier lieutenant des vassaux chevalier de la légion d'honneur paris et toulon eighteen fifty nine pages three eighty five and four thirty nine end of footnote where by skilful manoeuvring the french admiral saved his somewhat inferior force from capture and the english admiral gained indecisive victories monsieur rivier after giving a most just and impartial account of the battles sums up with the following excellent criticism footnote ibid page four hundred twenty five and a footnote i pay more attention to the sense than to the letter of my translation in this battle won by hawk the twentieth of november seventeen fifty seven and the combats of pocock and dachet from which date two distinct schools in the naval affairs of the eighteenth century one of these was all for promptness and audacity which were regarded as the indispensable conditions for victory the other on the contrary praised skilful delays and able evolutions and created success by science united to prudence but these two schools were true only according to circumstances not absolutely when two fleets of equal force are facing one another 
as in the war of the american revolution then tactics should come into play and audacity would often be mere foolhardiness if it happens on the other hand as in the republic or during the last years of louis the fifteenth that an irresolute fleet without organization has to contend with a fleet prepared in every way then on the part of this last audacity is wisdom and prudence would be cowardice for it would give an enemy who distrusts himself time to become more hardy the only school always true is that one which freed from all routine produces men whose genius will unite in one in knowing how to apply them appropriately the audacity which will carry off victory and the prudence which knows how to obtain it in preparing for it these generalizations are drawn from the results of mighty battles but they apply just as well to the campaigns carried on on a small scale or even to single ship actions chauncey as already said does not deserve the praise which most american historians and especially cooper have lavished on him as well as on all our other officers of that period such indiscriminate eulogy entirely detracts from the worth of a writer's favorable criticisms our average commander was i firmly believe at that time superior to the average commander of any other nation but to get at this average we must include chauncey rogers and angus as well as hull macdonough perry porter bainbridge biddle lawrence and Warrington. sir james yeo did to the full as well as his opponent and like him was a good organizer but he did little enough his campaigns must be considered as being conducted well or ill according as he is believed to have commanded better men than his opponent or not if as many british writers contend his crews were an overmatch for the americans man for man even to a slight degree then yeo's conduct was very cowardly if on the contrary the officers and men of the two fleets were on a par then he acted properly and outgeneraled his opponent it is to be regretted that most of the histories written on the subject on either side of the atlantic should be of the hurrah order of literature with no attempt whatever to get at the truth but merely to explain away the defeats or immensely exaggerate the victories suffered or gained by their own side erie and the upper lakes hitherto the vessels on these lakes as well as on ontario had been under the command of commodore chauncey but they were now formed into a separate department under captain arthur sinclair the americans had of course complete supremacy and no attempt was seriously made to contest it with them but they received a couple of stinging if not very important defeats it is rather singular that here the british who began with a large force while there was none whatsoever to oppose it should have had it by degrees completely annihilated and should have then and not till then when apparently rendered harmless have turned round and 
partially revenged themselves by two cutting-out expeditions which were as boldly executed as they were skilfully planned captain sinclair sailed into lake huron with the niagara caledonia ariel scorpion and tigris and on july twentieth burnt the fort and barracks of st joseph which were abandoned by their garrison on august fourth he arrived off the fort of Makilimackinac, which was situated on such an eminence that the guns of the vessels could not reach it accordingly the troops under colonel crogan were landed covered by the fire of the schooners very successfully but when they tried to carry the fort they were driven back with a loss of seventy men thence sinclair sailed to the natagawasa creek attacked and destroyed a blockhouse three miles up it which mounted three light guns and also a schooner called the nancy but the commander of the schooner lieutenant worsley with his crew escaped up the river captain sinclair then departed for lake erie leaving the scorpion lieutenant turner and tigress sailing master champlin to blockade the nagagawasa news was received by the british from a party of indians that the two american vessels were five leagues apart and it was at once resolved to attempt their capture on the first of september in the evening four boats started out one manned by twenty seamen under lieutenant worsley the three others by seventy-two soldiers under lieutenants bulger armstrong and radhurst of the army in all ninety-two men and two guns a six and a three-pounder a number of indians accompanied the expedition but took no part in the fighting at sunset on the second the boats arrived at st mary's street and spent twenty-four hours in finding out where the american schooners were at six p m on the third the nearest vessel the tigress was made out six miles off and they pulled for her it was very dark and they were not discovered till they had come within fifty yards when champlin at once fired his long twenty-four at them before it could be reloaded the four boats had dashed up those of lieutenant worsley and armstrong placing themselves on the starboard and those of lieutenants bulger and radhurst on the port side there was a short sharp struggle and the schooner was carried of a crew of twenty-eight men three were killed and five including mr champlin dangerously wounded the assailants lost three seamen killed lieutenant bulger seven soldiers and several seamen wounded footnote letter of lieutenant a h bulger september seventh eighteen fourteen james says only three killed and eight wounded but lieutenant bulger distinctly says in addition and several seamen wounded End of footnote. the defence of this vessel writes lieutenant bulger did credit to her officers who were all severely wounded next day the prisoners were sent on shore and on the fifth the scorpion was discovered working up to join her consort entirely ignorant of what had happened she anchored about two miles from the tigress 
and next morning at six o'clock the latter slipped her cable and ran down under the jib and foresail the american ensign and pendant still flying when within ten yards of the scorpion the concealed soldiers jumped up poured a volley into her which killed two and wounded two men and the next moment carried her a surprised crew of thirty men making no resistance the whole affair reflected great credit on the enterprise and pluck of the british without being discreditable to the americans it was like lieutenant elliot's capture of the detroit and caledonia End of part fourteen meanwhile a still more daring cutting out expedition had taken place at the foot of lake erie the three american schooners ohio somers and porcupine each with thirty men under lieutenant conkling were anchored just at the outlet of the lake to cover the flank of the works at fort erie on the night of august twelfth captain dobbs of the charwell and lieutenant radcliffe of the netley with seventy-five men and marines from their two vessels which were lying off fort erie resolved to attempt the capture of the schooners the seamen carried the captain's gig upon their shoulders from queenstown to frenchman's creek a distance of twenty miles thence by the aid of some militia five bateaux as well as the gig were carried eight miles across the woods to lake erie and the party whether with or without the militia i do not know embarked in them between eleven and twelve the boats were discovered a short distance ahead of the somers and hailed provision boats which deceived the officer on deck as such boats had been in the habit of passing and repassing continually during the night before he discovered his mistake the boats drifted across his hawse cut his cables and ran him aboard with a volley of musketry which wounded two of his men and before the others could get on deck the schooner was captured in another moment the british boats were alongside the ohio lieutenant conkling's vessel here the people had hurried on deck and there was a moment's sharp struggle in which the assailants lost lieutenant radcliffe and one seaman killed and six seamen and marines wounded but on board the ohio lieutenant conkling and sailing-master m cayley were shot down one seaman killed and four wounded and captain dobbs carried her sword in hand the porcupine was not molested and made no effort to interfere with the british in their retreat so they drifted down the rapids with their two prizes and secured them below the boldness of this enterprise will be appreciated when it is remembered that but seventy-five british seamen unless there were some militia along with no artillery attacked and captured two out of three fine schooners armed each with long thirty-two or twenty-four and an aggregate of ninety men and that this had been done in waters where the gig and five bateaux of the victors were the only british vessels afloat champlain this lake which had hitherto played but 
an inconspicuous part was now to become the scene of the greatest naval battle of the war a british army of eleven thousand men under sir george prevost undertook the invasion of new york by advancing up the western bank of lake champlain this advance was impracticable unless there was a sufficiently strong british naval force to drive back the american squadron at the same time accordingly the british began to construct a frigate the confiance to be added to their already existing force which consisted of a brig two sloops and twelve or fourteen gunboats the americans already possessed a heavy corvette a schooner a small sloop and ten gunboats or row galleys they now began to build a large brig the eagle which was launched about the sixteenth of august nine days later on the twenty fifth the confiance was launched the two squadrons were equally deficient in stores etc the confiance having locks to her guns some of which could not be used while the american schooner ticonderoga had to fire her guns by means of pistols flashed at the touch-holes like barclay on lake erie macdonough and downey were hurried into action before they had time to prepare themselves thoroughly but it was a disadvantage common to both and arose from the nature of the case which called for immediate action the british army advanced slowly toward plattsburg which was held by general maycomb with less than two thousand effective american troops captain thomas macdonough the american commodore took the lake a day or two before his antagonist and came to anchorage in plattsburg harbor the british fleet under captain george downey moved from isle aux noix on september eighth and on the morning of the eleventh sailed into plattsburg harbor end of part fifteen